Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that helps you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. You've got this. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss for physicians. I am not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 134 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy that you're here. Today, I have an exciting interview for you. I have Dr. Sylvia Terra joining me, who is the author of The Secret Life of Fat. Now, this is a book that I read back, well, actually listened to the audiobook back when I was just starting in obesity medicine, like I think it was probably six or seven years ago. It's a fantastic book that really goes into the background about adipose tissue and what adipose tissue and adipocytes actually are doing in your body. And it explains a lot of some of the struggles that you may have experienced with your body losing weight or keeping weight off and understanding it from a biological standpoint, I think is really powerful. So excited to have her on to talk about and give you guys knowledge that we probably didn't learn in medical school. So going a little bit deeper than just the basics that were taught, if your medical school training was anything like mine, where it was just very basics about weight and how to use that in your own journey. How do you take this knowledge about what fat tissue and adipocytes are doing in your body and how do you then use that knowledge to actually lose weight if you're wanting to and keep it off. I think that's a really important aspect that's often misunderstood or overlooked too. All right. One of the big aspects about any way of eating and keeping it off, and I think it relates a lot to what we talked about in this interview, is having the mental tools, the mindset, so that you can be in a place to problem solve it, even when it feels like it's not working. I think that's so important, especially in this interview, we talk a little bit about perimenopausal type weight loss and weight gain and why that's sometimes more difficult. And so having the mindset to be able to stick with it, having the mindset to make it feel easy to stick to the way of eating that you're working on is really important. And that's what I do. That's what I help you with. There's a whole lot of resources on my website that you can download for free to get more help with the areas that you feel that you need. One of the popular ones that I think is really, really helpful to get you going is my Powerful Weight Loss Beliefs. And it's a PDF download, plus there's some extras that you get in the email. But really, it's about using beliefs that empower you and energize you and focus you to do this for the long haul, because honestly, that's what it takes. We all know it's not about like quick, rapid weight loss and then you're done. I think we've all tried that, didn't work. And so it's about keeping your mindset. The number one thing is keeping your mindset focused so that you actually can be consistent and continue on with the changes that you're making and problem solve them when it feels like they're not working. So head over to weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca, click on the resources tab and you can download the powerful weight loss beliefs from there as well as there's a whole bunch of other resources that I've got on there all for free that you can download. So head over there and check it out, okay? And then make sure that you listen to this interview. And so without further ado, here's Dr. Tara. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tara. Thank you so much for joining me on your holiday weekend, taking time out to talk about fat. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. 
Can you start by introducing yourself to everybody listening? Sure. So I'm Sylvia Terra. I have a science background. I was a scientist originally. I have a PhD in biochemistry and also got my MBA. And I I early on went into biotechnology and did a lot of drug development and other types of uh, research and science. I got very interested in fat. Um, I guess it had to have been almost 10 years ago now. So the one issue I have is I gain weight extraordinarily easily and I only lose it with great difficulty. And I compared myself to others. I had friends who could eat what they wanted, not have to care very much, and they would stay thin. I went on a number of different diets, and I'd lose some weight, but usually not as much as people around me. And I got very tired of this, and I was about to go on yet another diet. And I thought, you know, I really have to understand my fat. My fat is behaving differently than other people's fat. It's much more stubborn than what other people are dealing with. And for some reason, I'm having a lot of a lot of issues with it. So for about five years, I read every article in the scientific literature about obesity research. And I talked to about 50 scientists around the world to give me more background on the research they were doing. And what I found out about fat, it was really surprising, right? It's not what we're taught. It's not just this reserve of calories, this inert blubber that we carry around that we have to get rid of at all costs. It's actually an interactive endocrine organ in your body. And it's doing a lot of things in your body, not just storing calories, which is one of the reasons your body tries to protect it. So there's a lot of very surprising things about fat that I think, especially for physicians and healthcare workers, it's really important to know because I don't think there's a course in med school or you know in research that's taught about adipose tissue. It's just assumed that it's a storage of calories and, and we're better off not having it. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so especially as doctors work with patients, right, to lose weight or try to lose weight themselves, really important to know the underpinnings of fat and what it's really doing in your body, not just what's out in the popular news. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you. Like we were talking a little bit before we started recording, but I remember medical school leptin being introduced as a concept, but really that was it. It didn't go into details about it, just that there is this hormone out there called leptin. And so everything else beyond that of what adipose tissue, I think until I did obesity medicine, I had the similar view that it's just this stuff on bodies that stores fat and is not good. It's kind of the basic medical and people just need to eat less and exercise more to get rid of it. That was the other medical school training (laughs) from it. So as you started to dig into it, what did you learn about fat that surprised you the most? I think that was one of the biggest ones is that fat through the hormones it secretes can actually control your mind and your thinking and can also control your metabolism. And that sounds really shocking. It's like, what on earth are you talking about? But you mentioned leptin, right? Fat is a primary organ. You know, it's not just tissue, right? It's an organ and it's producing leptin. And leptin, when it's secreted, goes into your circulatory system. It binds in areas of the hypothalamus and it actually affects how you think about food. So when we have our normal fat level, we feel overall satiated, right? We feel okay. As you start to lose fat, you start to lose some leptin. And that delta, your brain senses there's a decrease in the amount of leptin. And it's a trigger. It's a trigger for appetite. So you start getting a bigger appetite. You start seeking food. In a way, it's a signal to your brain that something's wrong in the environment. We're getting less food. Leptin levels have dropped. We're using fat. We must go out and seek food to survive. And so people who are on that weight loss journey, say they lose 10% of their weight or more, when they do fMRI images of their brain, when they look at pictures of food, their brain lights up wildly. The excitatory centers light up very wildly. The areas associated with control, self-control and inhibition are actually weaker in people who've lost weight. So they seek more food 
and they have lower ability to control themselves. And so fat, in a way, is controlling its own fate. It's trying to get the body to eat more so that it doesn't have to reduce itself. Hmm. The other thing that leptin does as it decreases is it sends signals to your, it also binds to your skeletal muscle. And so as leptin decreases, your muscles will switch to more efficient cells so that they burn less energy. So you actually burn about 22% fewer calories as you start to lose weight and lose fat than you did before. So the net net of this is that someone who say was at 170 pounds and lost 20 pounds to get to 150, when you compare them to somebody who's at 150 naturally, the person who lost that 20 pounds to get to 150 has to eat 22% fewer calories than the person who's 150 pounds naturally, right? There's a caloric penalty to losing fat because our bodies have gotten more efficient. They're trying to conserve calories and we're hungrier than before. We have more food seeking behavior. And so that was astounding. And it also says a lot about why there's so much recidivism. Why do we gain weight again? Because there's, and it's more than even just leptin, like even ghrelin, a number of other hormones are coordinated to make you seek food as you're losing weight. And so it's like, we can lose it for a while, it stays, but then we slowly, it wants to come back. There's just such a drive and an urge that your body is really undertaking to get you to put that fat back on. So it's fascinating. The more you understand the biochemistry of our bodies and how it interacts with fat, it's an eye-opener and you'll start to understand why you're feeling the way you do. And it's, it's not because you're on the wrong diet or you're doing your diet wrong. It's truly just our biology. Mm-hmm. And that can be very empowering to recognize because when it comes to weight, there's so much ownership of the struggle and so much shame that can be associated with it. And so to start to normalize it and understand the aspects that are truly just biology and just your body behaving the way it's actually meant to, I think that can be very, very helpful. It should be, I think, because I think a lot of people blame themselves. And this is one reason why they go off their diet or they think they can't do it. They start to lose confidence. So I know a lot of people, when I when I wrote this book and talked about it, they thought it was very depressing. So, you know, you just kind of ruined my hope, but it shouldn't be. To me, it was very empowering. It's like, aha, that's why I'm having this problem. It's not because I need to find a different diet. It's because this is the way a body behaves when you try to lose fat. And this is why it's easy to put it on. And it's also, you know, the really important reason why you have to find a diet that you want to be on for years and years, because the caloric penalty we talked about, it doesn't go away for everybody, right? So you might reach a new set point, but you might still have this higher urge to eat than you ever did before. And so you have to be on a diet that is satiating, that's filling, that you like being on for years. Yeah. And that's huge. That piece of it of eating in a way to lose weight that you then can keep going to maintain it is a big, big piece. So what else does leptin do? Does it play any other roles other than trying to keep the fat on us? Yeah, it tries to keep our fat on it in a way it's like keeping inventory of our calorie system. It does a lot of things. So we talked about how it binds to areas of the hypothalamus, it binds to skeletal muscle, right? So it can either increase or decrease metabolism. It also interacts with our thyroid hormone and thyroid productivity. So when we have sufficient levels of leptin, we're not losing weight. There's not a sense that there's decreasing leptin. We have actually more T4, right? And higher metabolism overall. And as we start to lose weight, that actually also goes down. So you can see the coordinated effort your body's making to try not to lose weight as you start to lose weight, as you start to lose fat, right? Your, your brain is more food seeking. Your muscles have gone on to become more efficient and burn less calories. And then your thyroid hormones actually also impacted. So your heat, right body... And this metabolism overall is affected by lower thyroid hormone. Reproduction's affected. So women who get very thin ballerinas and people who run a lot, they don't reproduce. And I, I spoke to some reproduction specialists, some doctors who focus on this. And, and one of the first things they try to do is just get these women to eat more, to get a little bit more fat. 
And leptin is a, one of the reasons for that, but also estrogen, right? Fat produces estrogen as well. And so when you don't have enough fat, it affects you know, your estrogen proje- uh, production. And also you don't have enough leptin, right? Which is also involved. T-cell activity, surprisingly, our immune system is linked with fat and leptin. And so T-cells uh, have some receptors for leptin. And when we don't have enough fat, you're actually more prone to, to illness, which we see in third world countries, even with people with anorexia. Wound healing, right? There's those parts of the epithelial layer in our veins that interacts with leptin. Our wounds don't heal as quickly with when we're very low fat. And bone health, that's a really important one. Bone and fat actually have a way to talk to each other, which sounds really weird, but fat through estrogen, right? And weight bearing, it signals to bone to build itself. And our bone signals back by producing a hormone called osteocalcin. And through that signaling cascade, that hormone induces the pancreas to release more insulin, which then ultimately increases fat. So there's a bone fat axis where they're very important for each other. So for all those reasons, it's just, it's fascinating. And we're just the tip of the iceberg right now learning about this. This is really a fat research only started heavily probably in the 1980s or so. It's when obesity, right, and fatness started increasing. NIH released funds to study diabetes, to study fat. And that's when some of these findings started coming out, right? I mean, leptin probably around the 80s, right, the late 80s or so, when that finally came out and got published. And so we're still learning a lot. And I'm really looking forward to what else we learn about fat. It turns out it's not just fat. It's a very interesting, complex endocrine organ. And the best way to to wrap your head around that is think of fat like skin. If you just take a square inch piece of skin, it's just a piece of skin tissue, right? No big deal. But skin in its totality works like an organ. And I think before understanding that fat was an organ, people had to get their heads around skin as an organ, right? But now we also know fat. Fat, just like a biopsy piece of fat is not that meaningful. It's just fat tissue. But in its totality around your body, it's functioning like an organ and like an endocrine organ at that. Interesting. And, you know, listening to you talk about the complications of not enough fat and how that impacts a lot of different endocrine aspects. It's interesting because there's complications on the other side, right? Like fertility is a fantastic example of when you start to get too much adipose tissue and you have too much of that estrogen and things like that or inflammation that's produced, that then impacts the reproduction in a negative way on the opposite side. Yeah. So it's just interesting the, the balance, right, of finding the happy spot. Exactly. It It can't be too much and it can't be too little, right? You have to have a healthy layer of fat. And one thing that's important is stop hating your fat. Your fat, the more you learn about it, it's actually there to help you. I mean, not just to be a reserve of calories, but actually to to try to maintain your body, your wound healing, your immune system, your metabolism, reproduction. In a way, fat is your body's signal to your body. It's a signal through nature, right? Of what's going on in the environment. Do we have adequate nutrition? That's why if you lose too much fat, those women don't reproduce very easily, right? They start losing periods. It's like a signal that this environment is not right for producing children. And so, and and then same to your brain, when you start losing fat, your brain's worried something has changed in our environment. So your fat is like this, the signal of what's going on in your environment to the rest of your body. And it is trying its best to help you, not just by being a reserve of calories, but for maintaining everything. And so you have to look at it very differently. So having way too much, that's very bad. I mean, for all kinds of reasons of inflammation, it has too much estrogen, too much of some of these hormones. Having too little, right, is also very bad. Brain shrink, your brain size is directly linked to your fat, right? You lose brain volume when when you lose too much fat. A number of things we just talked about, right? How you can be adversely affected if you have too little fat. But I think what the dieting industry does wrong is, you know, they have to sell their diet program. They have to sell their book. 
So there's a lot of pictures of six pack abs, you know, people with 17% body fat, you know, there's this message that you should be as thin as you possibly can and not have even an extra five pounds. You know, in truth, there's probably about 15, 20 pounds you can carry without really adversely affecting yourself. I mean, it's always best not to be overweight, but if you have, you know, an extra 15 or so, it's not necessarily the end of the world either. And so you have to be within this band of what's, you know, a healthy level of fat. It's probably not 50 pounds overweight, but it's probably not 20 pounds underweight either, right? It's mm-hmm. within this band. And so I think that's, you know, one thing interesting is that there's another hormone that fat produces that's important to talk about too. It's called adiponectin. And that's actually guiding the fat, right, in your circulatory system to go to the healthy deposits of fat in your body. So we know that, you know, visceral fat is unhealthy. It tends to get inflamed, right? That's the type of fat most correlated with heart disease and diabetes. But if you have your extra weight, say, in your buttocks or on your legs or your arms, it's a healthier deposit of fat, right? And you can carry some extra pounds there without having a lot of metabolic disease associated with it. So adiponectin, it's, it actually gets produced, it's evoked, say, by exercise when we have a heart long bout to exercise. We actually produce more adiponectin out of our fat cells. Sumo wrestlers is something I write about in the book. So they're obviously very obese. But interestingly, all that fat they carry is subcutaneous fat. It's not visceral mm-hmm. fat, right? So it's right under the skin. It's not underneath that stomach wall. And part of the reason they are able to maintain that is because they exercise for about six hours a day. And so they have very you know, high levels of adiponectin overall. So all their fat gets distributed in the subcutaneous layer and not in the visceral area. And so adiponectin helps put your fat in the right places where it's supposed to be. So once again, fat is determining its own fate. Not only is it trying to stay on you, right, by making you hungry or lowering your metabolism when you try to lose it. Also, when it's functionally normally, it's trying to go to the right places where it can live comfortably within your body, right, and not kill its own host, right, not cause inflammatory disease. And so what's interesting, when sumo wrestlers retire, when they stop exercising so much, they get metabolically unhealthy fast, right? So they start to get visceral fat. It starts to move. It starts to go in other places because they don't have that same level of activity and adiponectin. So there's a lot to know about fat. And, you know, the good thing about my book, The Secret Life of Fat, is that it's written through stories of patients, stories of scientists, stories of doctors. So it's not a textbook. You know, it's very much told through like tales of what people have gone through. You know, the story of how leptin was discovered, what Jeffrey Friedman went to. It's almost like a suspense. So it's an easy read and a good one. I think especially you know for physicians and healthcare workers and especially those who are trying to help people lose weight. It's actually critical to have this level of understanding about our fat. Mm-hmm. What happens like when the fat, the adipose tissue starts to kind of tip into unhealthy fat, like where it starts to be behaving abnormally? What is actually happening on a biochemistry level that causes it to do that? Yeah, so it's becoming hypoxic. You know, there's, there's different theories of it. So the theory is that if especially underneath the stomach wall, it doesn't expand as readily, right? It's a tight area. It's nestled up against your pancreas. You know, one thought is it's starting to block some of your islet cells and other cells that produce normal amounts of insulin. It starts to send out weird signals to them. So obstructing organs themselves is one of the hypotheses. I think another one is that the fat gets very crowded and it gets hypoxic. So it starts to lack oxygen. And when it lacks oxygen, it sends out cytokines, right? A distress signal to the body, if you will. And by sending out cytokines, it starts to recruit even more immune cells. Macrophages get activated. A number of things go into that fat 
to then when that fat is really to the point that the fat's really inflamed and it's sending out inflammatory signals to the rest of the body as well. So that crowdedness, I think, is the start of why visceral fat becomes really unhealthy. Now, again, if you have that fat in the subcutaneous area, right, where it can expand like sumo wrestlers do, it seems to be less unhealthy. So it's more about where your fat is. Is it in those confined spaces in that very metabolically you know, active area of visceral fat or is it somewhere else like your arms or so? And what's interesting too, like exercise is a good way to keep visceral fat away. You know, you have to be kind of overweight, but try to stay fit and healthy. You know, exercise is a good thing to do to keep that connected high. And what's interesting is that even like when there's patients who have liposuction, so they have fat removed. And what they find is that they still have the same effects as if they've lost weight. So they have lower leptin, right? Their adiponectin's off. They tend to gain their fat back, just like a lot of dieters do. But when they gain it back, they gain it in less healthy areas. So they might have had fat removed from their thighs, right? Or their buttock area, but they'll gain it back in their visceral area, which is, it's a little frightening, right? And I don't know that people know exactly the reason why yet. But no matter how you lose your fat, it does want to come back, even if you lose it through liposuction. And the odd thing about liposuction is it comes back more to the visceral area. So anyway, long answer to your question about why it gets inflamed and, and a little bit extra about why, why liposuction is not necessarily the answer. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when we're talking about like healthy spots to have fat and less healthy, it's the healthy spots to have fat that bother us as a population right? Like it's the fat on your thighs, on your butt, on the outside of your abdomen that makes it jiggly that then we dislike as a society and feel shouldn't be there. And it's the hidden fat that we might not actually be seeing that probably is what's actually more likely to impact our health long-term. Yeah, that's true. I mean, one thing is if you have a paunch, right? You kind of know you have visceral fat, like that really hard, you know, big stomach. And if you lie down and it goes off to the side, that's kind of a quick rule of thumb. Is it visceral or is it subcutaneous? If it stays there, right, you have this paunch, even when you lie down, it's probably visceral fat. So that's one way to tell. I mean, certainly a CT image is the best way to tell, but the quick one that's free and easy is to lie on your back. But yeah, it's we hate fat for the wrong reasons a lot of the time, right? And I know girls growing up, right, especially for girls, fat is critical, right, for bone health. Their bones actually have less density if they get too thin while they're in their teenage years. And of course, in the teenage years is when girls worry the most about fat, right? That's the advent of eating disorders, the advent of super self-conscious, of wanting to look very good. And it's exactly the wrong time to be worrying about fat to that extent anyway. So yeah, I agree with you. It seems like that the fat that is unseen dangerous, the fat that is seen, right, is, is the healthier place to have your fat. And again, I'll say that's not to be overweight, right? I'm not promoting obesity. I'm just saying if you're going to carry some extra pounds, some extra pounds of fat, best if that's in your arms and legs and buttock and not in your visceral area. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about genetics because that's something that comes up frequently, right? Of like, okay, everybody in my family carries extra weight. And so what does that mean for me? How does genetics play a role at the adipose tissue level? Yeah. And it's hard to know sometimes if it's genetics or it's just kind of family behavior, right? Is it nurture or nature? And there's some families with eating styles that that's the reason they're heavy is because they're, they're eating a lot of processed food or just eating too much or not active enough. But there is genetics to fat too. There's a lot of twin studies that are really interesting. Claude Bouchard did a lot of these where they take sets of twins and they notice that they gain weight in the same places and they gain and lose at about the same rates compared to the general population, right? So when you put two twins on a treadmill, they'll lose at a certain rate, you know, compared to another set of twins that's losing at a different rate. So those early genetic studies were an indicator. 
I think what's interesting even more so is some of the genotypes, right, that have been characterized out there. And I write about the Pima Indians, you know, of course, and, and these were a set of Indians. They came through the Bering Straits, right, from Siberia through Canada, and they settled in Arizona, and everything was fine. They gardened, they hunted, you know, they collected their own food, they were active, they ate, you know, no processed food at all. And then as uh, settlers started coming in, right, from, from the West at the turn of the century, 1900s or so, they started gaining weight. They started, first of all, they started acting more like some of the Western settlers, right? So they went to work for factories. They stopped farming as much. They started eating more processed food. There was a food program given to them around them, which included now flour and lard, you know, more fats and more processed food. And as they started to adopt a Western lifestyle, these Pima Indians became obese, right? Really obese. Although the Caucasians around them did not become obese on that same diet. And of course, that got a lot of attention. You know, the uh, NIH and UK took notice of this and started studying these Pima Indians. And what they were able to elucidate really is that, you know, these Indians throughout their ancestry, they had fought off famine, right? They had come through, you know, you can imagine Arizona desert every couple of decades or so there was a famine and, and their bodies had to adopt to be able to extract calories and hoard calories as much as possible so that they could weather a famine. But as this process, easy to digest food, came into their environment, their bodies were still acting like, you know, what they had was a thrifty genotype, right? Trying to really extract and save every part of those calories as much as possible. And so they were hoarding a lot of calories away, whereas the Caucasians nearby were not, their bodies were not acting in this way. And so, you know, what they evolved was being called a thrifty genotype. So there's certain populations of people, they come through, right, the kind of ancestry of generations where food was scarce, their bodies have evolved in such a way that helps them really hold on to their fat. Right? It's one of the things I write about in my book because I'm Eastern Indian and of course there's been famine in India and places I'm from. And I more or less now attribute that to one reason, I gain weight extraordinarily easily. So I can't eat a lot of these kind of Western foods that my friends, right, growing up could easily eat. They could eat candy and cupcakes and things like that. And even when I was 12, I would gain weight really easily at this time. So our bodies act differently depending on what genotype we have. And, you know, furthering some of that research on twins and populations, there's also been specific genes now identified that are correlated either with, you know, fat levels or with appetite. So one that I write about is called FTO, and people have a a certain variation in the FTO gene. They're more prone to, or they have more of an inclination to eat energy-dense foods, right? So when they have kids, they do the study with them at the cafeteria, and they let them fill up their plate with whatever they want. Kids with a certain variation of FTO tend to load their plate more with chips, right? Candy, cakes, things like that, compared to people who don't have that. So that that's interesting that appetite is linked to a little bit of this gene variation. And again, there's other another one, IRS1, right? A and B. And depending on the variant you have, either A or B, it clears out your blood faster. So it's, it's, it'll store nutrients away, right? So your blood is very clear, but people with that B variant, they tend to be a little bit heavier as well. So our genetics do play a part. And again, it's kind of early days of research, but we're finding out more and more that it's it's not calorie in, calorie out, right? We're a big biochemical bag. And depending on what biochemistry you have in your body, when you eat a muffin, it's not going to have the same effect as another person eating a muffin on their body. And there's research on that as well, right? So I think Weizmann Institute, they, they looked at blood sugar levels after various people ate certain foods. So like a muffin, like an example I just gave, you know, some people, they got no blood sugar response at all. It was like they didn't do anything. And other people just had a small amount and they would get a spike. 
about blood glucose. So our bodies really react differently depending right, on genetics, depending on our age, what hormones we have in our bodies at the time, even depending on your microbiome in your gut, right? So a calorie will behave differently or have a different fate, right, depending on who it is that's eating that calorie. I find the microbiome is such a, I find it so fascinating, the concept of how much impact the bacteria in our gut have on us. And again, it's such like fairly new research and we could spend an hour talking just about microbiome. But let's talk about just like you referenced menopause or hormonal changes. And that's a big thing for a lot of people that listen to this podcast, either they're there or they're going there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, how does menopause impact the adipose tissue? This is really something. <laughs> so fat changes as we age, right? It, it doesn't stay the same. It changes in, you know, how active it is. It changes on where it is in your body as well and how easy or difficult it's going to be to lose. So, you know, most of our lives, like fat, I have a whole chapter on women and fat. And I actually just put out a course because I know for the book, a lot of people to make, to implement some of the teachings or learnings in the book, a course works a little bit better. It's kind of something you can go through little by little and implement changes along the way. But there's a whole chapter on women versus men. And I had to write this because of course, one of the obvious, you know, observations we have is that men can, looks like they can eat anything, right? And they don't gain weight. And if they do have to go on a diet, they lose weight extremely quickly. And I needed to get to the bottom of what is going on with this. So it turns out, you know, babies, girls, even when they're babies, they have more fat than boys do. They are born with more fat. It's like we're predisposed to just have more fat as women. We interact with our fat a little bit differently as well. So men, when we do, when we say when we do exercise, right, large body exercise, men's body actually reaches for glycogen first, right, before going to fat, whereas women will reach for fat quite readily. Bodies will use that as an energy source during a fast or during exercise. When we get off that exercise, off that treadmill, women produce more ghrelin after exercise compared to men. So if it's a hard bout of of exercise, say five, 600 calories got burned off. In that experiment, women produce 33% more ghrelin than men. And ghrelin is a hormone from your stomach that is correlated to hunger, right? Causes hunger. So they're a lot hungrier after they exercise and there's a much more of a drive to put those calories back on. So women and men, they treat fat, they interact with their fat differently, let's say, right? And women store fat at two to three times the rate that men do, right? After after they eat a meal. So we're a little bit more predisposed to have fat. And so normally as we grow, even though we have higher fat levels, right? We have high amounts of estrogen growing up. We have high amounts of growth hormone, even high amounts of testosterone in women's bodies. It actually helps burn fat and helps us maintain our fat. And, you know, through the years, of course, during pregnancy, there's another shift of hormones that helps you gain weight during pregnancy as well. But as you get to middle age, you start to lose estrogen, as we all know, right? And estrogen is a great fat burning hormone. And as you get less of it, it's much easier to gain weight. And our fat cells have receptors for testosterone and growth hormone and estrogen, right? And they start to kind of downregulate. You don't have as many. And that, that changes distribution of your fat as well, right? So you, it's like there's ears on your fat cell that will listen to the signal of testosterone growth hormone, right? And as they listen to that signal, they'll be more ready to lose fat as needed. And as that signal starts to decrease, you get a decrease in receptors as well. And it all changes everything to where you're just not getting signals to your fat cells to lose some of that fat. And so it changes where the, body, where the fat is and it changes how it behaves. And so that's a really a big difference as women go through menopause. Another aspect of fat is the aromatization of estrogen happens in fat tissue, right? So as you produce less estrogen from your ovaries, your fat becomes a major producer of estrogen for women's bodies. And it's one reason why your body might be more protective of its fat as we hit middle age. 
So for all those reasons, and not only that, but you lose more fat burning tissues as well, right? Like we lose some muscle mass with age. We lose a little bit of bone with age. We're perhaps a little less active anyway. So we have less fat burning tissue. You have less fat burning hormones. It is a total recipe for gaining fat. And it's, it's really, I think, the most difficult time in a woman's life for maintaining fat is somewhere between, say, like 50 to 65. There's just this period where we are the most prone to gain weight ever. A normal distribution of fat in a women's body, it tends to be their hips, their buttocks, right, their breasts. It now starts to be visceral area as well. Like for all this time before we hit menopause, that was a differentiator. Men had more visceral fat or had more, more prone for visceral fat. But now women start to get visceral fat and belly fat as well. So like you can't win. It's very hard to win at this time. You can, of course, win. And there's lots of things you can do. I mean, one is you can be very vigorous about exercise, but be very careful about what you eat. It's an investment. It's a day-to-day like way of living and thinking, right, to get through this period. I do write about hormone replacement therapy as well, right? There are some women, some people, right? I wrote about um, one man and one woman who've gone through this. And if, if it, it can get so out of whack, you feel so out of control that they actually use this to just get hormones back, right? Get some more fat burning. And especially, you know, for menopause, I think it's looked at more of, of using estrogen to kind of smooth that curve, right? And to help them get it back in order. And after that, they were able to maintain it. But it was a help during this time, especially if you find you're in the middle of it, it's gotten out of control. And like, how on earth do I, do I get back? And you're really struggling. You know, medical weight loss is something to look at. And of course, you know, your doctors, your physician listeners, I think sometimes it's looked at as like, I don't know, like bad medicine, right? To do this, to take hormones, or it's something you're not supposed to do, or it's illegal. And it's, and some of it is off label, you know, I have to admit. But I think there are certain types of patients for which this has been very useful for just to get back on track, right? And then the one male patient I write about, he was taking testosterone and he was able to like work out, build the muscle mass back, right? And then after, I think it was about a year or more, he was able to stop and he maintained some of that muscle mass and that lifestyle, right? That energy that he got when he was using testosterone. So it doesn't have to be a forever thing, but it can be useful. And of course, there's side effects, right? So each patient is different. You have to weigh the risk and benefits, but there's risk of doing nothing, right? And doing nothing as well, right? If, if you have a patient or you are a person who's just gaining and it's it gains very easily in that period of time, that's a risk too. So again, just a, a risk benefit kind of analysis has to be done. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, so we've talked a lot about the kind of the background of the fat. Let's talk about more from the practical standpoint, which you were starting to talk about there. So when we know what our fat does and what it's trying to do, and we can respect it and understand it for what it's doing, how do we then kind of essentially hack the process or, you know, how do we actually reach the goals that we're trying to do and be able to maintain them? Yeah, this is great. And my course focuses on this because it's really a spectrum and it depends on where you are in your life. So if you're like 25 and you have an extra 15 pounds to lose, I remember how easy that used to be, right? I mean, for, it's always been hard for me to lose weight, but it was by far easier then compared to what it is now. I had estrogen, I had testosterone, I had growth hormone, I had more muscle mass, like, and I was more active overall probably as well. As you get older, it's really hard and you have to take more extreme measures, right? And you have to stay with it. There's less cheat days you can have because sending off that signal like, hey, I don't have to be on this diet, your body reacts to that. So I found depending on where you are on that stubbornness scale, like how hard you fight with fat, intermittent fasting can be a great fat buster for for really stubborn fat, I find, right? And it's a more extreme measure. It's a little bit hard to start and stay on, but I have found 
nothing much that works better than that for really stubborn fats or women and like who are like in their 50s or 60s or so in that window of a tough time. And one reason that it works, it's, it's for a lot of reasons, actually. I mean, there's a lot of writing now about how giving your body a break from insulin is kind of good. Jason Fung, I don't know if you've had him on your show, but he writes a lot about that. So you're kind of balancing out your insulin, you're kind of reducing that hyperinsulin math that people get when they're just constantly eating and grazing all the time. So your body can get more sensitive to insulin. But intermittent fasting too, our growth hormone levels, they peak at night, right? From our pituitary gland. So they're highest at night. When you eat around when those levels are up, you actually mitigate the effects of growth hormone. It's not as potent if you have kind of nutrients in your blood and all of that. So if you can stop eating around the time of sleeping, right, before, like say stop eating at six o'clock or so, don't eat again till like nine or 10 the next morning, if you can prolong that overnight fast, your growth hormone is actually more potent and it's a great fat buster, right? So that's good to have. Also, when we sleep adequately, our leptin levels are higher during the day. So we're overall a little bit more satiated as well. You know, obviously, when you're not eating for a long time, glucagon levels are higher too from the pancreas and that helps you burn off some fat as well. Right. So there's a whole bunch of kind of hormones. You have to think of your body as like a bag of hormones. And so when you put, and it's a different bag of hormones that everybody has. So like when you put, like say a cookie into one, it's going to have a slightly different effect than a cookie in another person. And so if you're having a hard time, these are just kind of tricks you can use to bust that off again, right? Take advantage of, you know, the growth hormone, which is now lower in your body, right? As you age, growth hormone, testosterone, estrogen, everything is lower, but it's highest at night. Let it prolong that fast, right? To, To make the most of it. Exercise also becomes important as you age for all kinds of reasons, right? We've lost some of those, uh, the muscle mass, right? The, the fat burning tissue, and it's been replaced with fat. So the more you can put some of that muscle mass back on, that will help you. Muscle and exercise also, you know, is good for adiponectin, putting fat where it belongs, right? And also some exercise, like when you, if you exercise heavily, like deep knee bends, kind of weights, things like that, you're starting to produce testosterone as well, right? Some of those other hormones, growth hormone comes out when we exercise as well. And it's not necessarily just gardening, right? Or light exercise, like really start lifting weights, really start going into aerobics. High intensity interval training is very good for all of those hormones, right? So now you have to think of fat as not just extra calories, but like, how do I use my hormones that I have left, right? How do I increase those levels? And how do I use that to burn my fat? So I have found for very stubborn fat, it's, uh, it's, you know, stop eating after six or so, right? If it's really tough, like I know when I have to really lose weight, I have to stop after three. I really can't eat much after three and I don't eat till nine o'clock the next day. So I've got about an 18 hour fast that I do. And it might be a shorter window, right? Depending on your body. But then in addition to that, I do do high intensity interval training as well, right? And that helps it. And if you can do that in a fasted state, that'll bust it even faster. So these aren't necessarily easy things to do, but if you're really struggling, right? And you want to get that off, it's just more extreme measures. And there's another chapter I have called Mind Over Fat. It's about how to get through all of this. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times it's just what is the mindset you're in, right? Um, people get through all kinds of things. You read books about prisoners of war, or like these, these horrible things that have happened to people. They got into mindsets that help them get through this time. And if they can do that, then surely, you know, your regular person can get into a mindset where they're going to take on their fat and they're going to go through this. And, you know, I write about in the book that I was really angry, right? When I was kind of angry at my body because it gains weight so fast. And I just used that anger. Now that I knew what fat was all about, it's like, okay, I'm armed, right? I'm ready and I'm armed and I'm taking this on and there's nothing that's going to stop me now. And so I, I kept a log of everything I ate. And I, did I gain or lose? And some of that research that shows you that diff, you know people can eat different foods and they normally gain at the same rate. 
I kept a log of when did I stop eating? And that's when I, I noticed like how long does my window need to be before I, I start losing weight? So, you know, correlated with that log, I weigh myself every day and I started to see trends about, you know, when I had to stop eating, when I, when I could start, what I could eat or not eat, things that made the weight plateau, right? And things that would get it going again. And you'll start to learn a lot about yourself. But you no know, weight loss for that, like say, 55-year-old female who's had two kids, who's yo-yo dieted right their whole life because now their their body's tuned on how to gain weight as well. That person's going to have a whole lot harder time losing weight. T- has to take these extreme measures compared to this like 22-year-old male who has 10 pounds to lose, who's going to lose it honestly in about two weeks. Right? All they have to do is cut down eating and exercise a bit, and it'll go. So the weight loss program has to be individualized for that person and what they're going through, their dieting history, you know, somewhat of genetics, just how hard is it for them to lose weight? Male or female is going to factor in as well. Yeah. And just recognizing for the the people listening that, you know, the difficulty, like how hard it is to lose weight is just kind of a fact of you in your particular body. And it doesn't mean, you know, anything about you doing it wrong. And I think also this is something I had to come to terms my own is you have to let go of the thoughts of it not being fair of watching and comparing what other people can eat and what other people do. Because when you're holding onto those thoughts, it just makes you eat in that way that you, you know, are wishing you could eat that, you know, doesn't work for your particular body. And then you're constantly on that cycle and it just doesn't lead anywhere positive that wishing. I think you're right about that. You don't have to look like everybody else either, right? Like you don't have to have glistening six pack abs in order to be healthy and happy. Right. Like I said, you can have 10 pounds extra and still be okay. And sometimes that kind of forgiveness or latitude actually helps people get going, right? To not let the perfect get in the way of what's possible, right? Like just get to a healthy weight to where you feel good. And if it's 10 pounds over what everyone says you should be, you're probably going to be okay. Right. And so you have to individualize it for you. And so don't try to be somebody else. You know, don't treat your body like it's someone else. Just see it as enlightenment. That's how I started seeing it. It was like finally the aha moment of why, as long as since I've been a kid, I gained weight faster than everybody. Why do I have to work so much harder than anyone in my family even to be able to lose it? And, you know, I got it. It's a thrifty genotype. It's my age. It's that I'm female. You know, it's probably that I've yo-yo dieted throughout my life. So my leptin levels have buried. My body is very good at putting it back on. It's what I live with. And the alternative is that you just cave, right? That you just give in and you eat the way you want, but you'll get fatter and fatter, right? Like that rate of gain doesn't stop, right? And, and so people can really balloon, especially in middle ages, you know, the only solution really is you accept who you are, you know, what your genetics are, what your your family background is, your own background, right? And however you've treated your body and you just deal with it. And I, I think in the beginning, I wouldn't eat dinner. And I would cook dinner for my family, but I wouldn't eat. If they were so kind of outraged at this, they were so hurt, <laughs> like they wanted me to enjoy with them. And I think everyone just gets used to it after a while. And now I write about this one patient, his name is Randy, where he actually had a virus that caused fat on his body that made it very hard for him to lose weight. And anyway, he finally did get it completely under control. But he says, I'm not part of the eating world. There's the eating world and the non-eating world. And if you have very stubborn fat, either due to age, genetics, you know, viruses, whatever it may be, you don't have to be fat, but you do really have to watch what you eat. And he's in the 60s. I think he eats about 1,200 calories a day. He exercises a lot. Right? He goes for long runs. And he's very very thin now. He's in really good shape. But he says, I'm not part of the eating world. Like my family will go out to a picnic and they'll have pizza and sandwiches. I'll bring my boiled eggs and salad. And so he really stays true to what his body needs. And it's uncomfortable socially. But, you know, do your best to find a diet that works on all dimensions. So one that's biologically, you're losing weight. 
and that it can work for you socially, right? So I know I don't eat dinner with my family. And if I were in a business where I had to entertain clients and eat dinners, I probably wouldn't pick that diet. I'd pick something else, right? Because it would be too hard to stay on. I'd pick something where maybe I fasted in the day instead of the night. Or I pick something that was, say, very low carb, like an Atkins diet where you can eat. You just can't eat any carb, right? You, you can live your life a little bit better that way. So a diet has to work for you socially as well. It has to be something you can stay on for years and years because there's a chance you can't come off because that caloric penalty we talked about stays for a number of years. So find one that works for you long haul and that you're happy with. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Now, just as we're wrapping up, where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm on Facebook. You can go to at Sylvia Tara PhD. I'm on Twitter. I'm trying to get better at social media. Everyone's telling me to get on Instagram and Pinterest and I've got to figure those out. So I'll be there soon. <laughs> but the best place is uh, I have a website that's called www.thesecretlifeoffat.com. And there you can find the courses there, right? So you can find some of the things I write about. You can find some of the media I've done and the courses there as well. The book is on amazon.com. I think it's in some bookstores as well. So it's out and about. And I do post on Facebook and I do comment on some of the latest research on that too. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time out today to join me. Great. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So much good information in that interview. So fascinating to hear exactly what our adipose tissue is doing. I think it makes me feel more respectful of it every time I am reminded of how complex of a tissue it is, that it's not just sitting there being annoying on my stomach. It's actually doing stuff and just so interesting to hear. And I think Dr. Tara mentioned this at one point in the interview, but over the next years, it's going to be so interesting to see what else we learn about it. What other things is it doing? Make sure you go check out her book, Secret Life of Fat. Like I said, I've read it years ago. It's excellent. And as she mentioned in the interview, it is an easy read. It's an interesting read and worthwhile. And then check her out on her website, www.thesecretlifeoffat.com. All right. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you're listening to it so that you get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. Got lots of exciting new content and things planned for you coming up. And if you could take the time to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. It does help the podcast get found by other people that can benefit from this information. Right. Have a fantastic week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.